I am grateful for the opportunity to be with you again. I enjoyed uh, my experience in the theater last time and was delighted when Richard said, hey, we're going to have five speakers. Would you be one? I said, yes. He could have told me to preach in the men's restroom, and I would have said yes. I was just excited to have the opportunity. But I confess to you, this morning's message needs to come with a warning label. Now, that is not the most intelligent way for a guest speaker to begin a sermon, is it? But it needs to come with a warning label. If you walked into the theater this morning because you were looking for a spiritual rah-rah, sis-boom-bah, energy boost to jumpstart your week, I confess you're in the wrong place. And it's okay if you'd like to get up now and leave, everyone except my wife. But if you are interested in discovering some real answers to life's tough questions, then you're exactly where God wants you to be this morning. Let's pray together, and then we're going to see what God has for us from his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of being in your presence. I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts that we would listen this morning as if you were speaking and we're the only ones in the room. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Got Hurricane Grace moving north off the Atlantic seaboard. Huge. Getting massive. Two. This low south of Sable Island ready to explode. Look at this. Three. Fresh cold front swooping down from Canada. But the darn thing's caught a ride. Cool. Wait, wait, what if? What if Hurricane Grace runs smack into it? Add to the scenario this baby off Sable Island scrounging for energy. She'll start feeding off both the Canadian cold front and Hurricane Grace. You could be a meteorologist all your life and never see something like this. It would be a disaster of epic proportions. It would be the perfect storm. Unlike the movie, most storms strike without warning. They strike quickly, they strike cruelly, and they can be crippling. Amen? In an instant, our world can be turned upside down, leaving us to wonder, where is God when it hurts? If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why do bad things happen to good people? Those two questions have been circulating among communities and cultures for centuries, haven't they? I'm reminded of a little boy named Chris whose face had been badly burned in a fire. He wrote this note 
to a psychologist. Dear Dr. Gardner, some big person, it was a boy about 13. He called me a turtle. And I know he said this because of my plastic surgery. And I think God hates my lip. And when I die, he'll probably send me to hell. Love, Chris. Don't those words just break your heart? That poor little fellow had concluded that his tragedy was proof of God's rejection. It is a logical conclusion, is it not? If God is all-powerful and he knows everything, then why did he let such a horrible thing happen to me? Conclusion? God must hate me. As much as you and I give lip service to the biblical truth, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. We still struggle with storms when they strike, don't we? The winds blow. The rains fall. The waves of tragedy come crashing onto the shore of our souls. We cry out to God. And nothing. Where is God? Why doesn't he do something? The Bible does not avoid the hard questions of life. In fact, the Bible deals with the entire gamut of human emotions. The happy, the sad, the good, the bad, the miraculous, and the messy. The 77th Psalm is a messy psalm. It is one of a dozen psalms attributed to Asaph. He was the song stylist of the serious and the somber. He always wrote with a sense of sadness about him that imparted a toxic tone to his songs. He confronted God with hard questions. Questions about God's silence in the face of life's storms. I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to the 77th Psalm as we seek to learn from this musician of the melancholy. The 77th Psalm is one of those hard psalms, one of those messy psalms. Unlike many of the other psalms whose historical backgrounds are immediately evident, we do not know the underlying tragedy behind this toxic song. What we do know is the world of the psalmist is falling apart. Look at those first three verses. My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit 
grows faint. The rain is falling. The thunder is booming. The lightning is cracking. The waves are crashing. And in the midst of his hellish storm, the psalmist cries out to God. With outstretched arms, he doggedly, desperately pleads for divine deliverance. Like the psalmist, when our storm strikes, we must, we must, we must keep open the lines of communication with God. The moment this personal storm struck, the psalmist sought God. Notice, he did not turn to God as a last resort. He went to God as a first response. He he did not run from God. He ran to God. That was a good move. When you and I get angry with our spouse or friend or coworker, one of the most common means of expressing that displeasure is the silent treatment. Men, can I get a witness? Amen. It's okay. It's a safe place. Your wife gets angry. And the silence is frigidly chilling. Silence can be loud, can't it? But when you stop to think about it, we tend to do the same thing in the spiritual realm. When we are dazed, discouraged, disappointment, distraught, or imagine divine deceit, we try to give God the silent treatment. We just clam up. We stop praying. We stop reading his word. We find every excuse we can not to go to church. Instead of expressing our feelings, we try to bury them inside our souls as if God cannot see them there. We try to hide our hurts from the very one who can see into the depths of our hearts. How much better to get those feelings out into the Keep open the lines of communication. And in communicating with God, confess your feelings. If God knows us better than we know ourselves, if he can see into the very depths of our souls, then, beloved, he already knows our hurts. So be honest with him. That is what the psalmist chose to do. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. The psalmist shared the hurt that haunted him. He says, God, the agony is so great, I I can't sleep. You you have pried open my eyes so that sleep escapes me. The pain is so paralyzing. The grief is so great, I cannot even muster the words to verbalize the depth of my despair. 
I remember those occasions when you acted in the past, but I see you doing nothing in the present, and it's tearing me apart. God, my, my world is falling apart. It's shattered. The weight of it all is crashing in on me. And God, you seem to be asleep at the wheel. Where are you? Hard questions. Tough questions. The psalmist held absolutely nothing back. Amen? And neither should we. In communicating with God, be courageous enough to confront those hard questions. God can handle the truth. So be honest and confronting those hard questions. Well, look at what the psalmist asked. Questions most of us in this room would be petrified to verbalize out loud. He cuts loose with six gut-wrenching questions. Six questions that come like trumpet-like blasts as he screams from the depth of his soul trying to make sense out of the nonsense. Will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? You and I may not be brash enough to verbalize those questions, but haven't we at least thought them? We struggle with the storms. And storms are one thing we all have in common. Every one of us in the room this morning is either at this very moment just entering a storm. Or we sit here this morning finding ourselves at this very moment right smack in, in the middle of that storm. Or, by the grace of God, you're just coming out of that storm. That's the cycle of life. And sometimes we cry out to God in the midst of the maddening monsoon, and there is absolutely nothing. For the psalmist, the silence was not just deafening. It was deadly. It was tearing him apart. What do we do when, like the psalmist, we sincerely cry out to God in the midst of our own storm, but we cannot seem to find him anywhere? The 8th century agnostic philosopher David Hume said, If God is able to take the herd away, but is not willing, he is a malevolent evil God. If God is willing, but he is not able, he is an impotent, weak God. If God is both able and willing, why doesn't he do something? On November 29, 1991, a beautiful little baby boy was born into our home. Well, he wasn't so little, nine pounds, eight ounces. 
He could have walked across the room and smacked the doctor when he came out. <laughs> Benjamin Travis Dishman. Isn't that a great name? Figured if he was smart like his mama and became a doctor, Dr. Benjamin T. Dishman sounded very, very important. If he was an athlete like his daddy and began to play sports, TD would be pretty good initials for a running back or a receiver. Nine pounds, eight ounces. All of his scores were great. Everything was going wonderfully. It was a day after Thanksgiving, and boy, did we have much to be thankful for. They wheeled him away into the nursery. My wife got settled in her room. Everything looked wonderful. I ran home to make some phone calls. That was before cell phones. Called some family, friends, let the church family uh, know that everything had gone wonderfully and that a boy had arrived. I picked up some things for Karen, my wife, returned to the hospital that afternoon, and when I walked into the room, I immediately knew something was not right. A very observant nurse in the nursery noticed every time our son cried, he turned blue. They had called in a cardiologist. They were running some tests. And we sat in that room very, very anxious to hear the results. That Friday evening, they walked into that hospital room and told us that our son had transposition of the greater arteries, where the two arteries in the heart were reversed. In essence, what that means is the blood could not oxygenate properly because there were two different cycles going on. We were told normally they have to wait a month or so to perform any kind of surgery. But since our son was already 9 pounds, 8 ounces, they could do the surgery right away. The foremost pediatric heart surgeon on the East Coast was practicing in a hospital 12 minutes from where our son was born. The success rate of that surgery, 96%. That night, we kissed our son goodbye, and they transported him from Chippenham Hospital on one side of Richmond, Virginia, to the Medical College of Virginia. Following Tuesday, our son underwent 12 hours of heart surgery. Heart surgeon came into the waiting room. He looked at the two of us and he said, I want you to know that the surgery went textbook perfect. He's going to be connected to some machines to help his body recover. The most important of which was called an ECMO machine, which helped oxygenate the, the blood so his body could rest. He said, so don't be alarmed when you see him. It's all so that he could heal. From the Friday night that he had left the one hospital to the Tuesday of the surgery, he had been residing in the neonatal intensive care unit. That's usually where the preemies are housed. So you can imagine the scene. Here are these two and three pound babies. And then this nine pound, eight ounce behemoth. I mean, he was a monster. But after the surgery, he was in this adult bed with all of these machines 
And all of a sudden, he looks so small. Now, my wife Karen never had a doubt our son would live. I, on the other hand, I was having some heated discussions with God. Why was he doing this to us? We had given our lives to serve him. We had been obedient to his call. Why would he tease me with the boy for which I had prayed so long only to snatch him away? We had a beautiful little girl. Love her dearly. But I had always wanted a son. A son to play catch with. To coach. To talk about life. Well-meaning church members kept telling us, just don't ask God why. Don't ask God why. It's not your place to ask God why. And I thought, why not why? And in fact, in my stubbornness, I went to the scriptures and I discovered 357 occasions. I counted and read every one. Where hurting people in the midst of their hellish storm cried out to God from the depths of despair... Why? The most notable of which was the why that fell from the parched lips of the Lord Jesus Christ as he cried out in agony from a hellish cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But my why went unanswered. No hint of hope. No reassurance from the throne room of the Almighty. Absolutely nothing. Was it all some cruel joke? Was God simply trying to, to humor himself? I could not envision a God so cruel as to heap untold pain on two parents simply to satisfy his own perverse personal pleasure. I do not believe God operates that way. He does not step on us for the sheer joy of watching us squirm. And yet I was still left with the question, why us? And then I realized, why not us? Were we exempt from the sorrow and suffering of life simply because we were ministers of the gospel? In fact, is faith really faith at all? It, if it's never been forged on the fired line of life. You know, most of us in the room can handle tremendous pain if the circumstances make sense. But what do we do when God doesn't make sense? Karen and I stood on the brink of the betrayal barrier. But that moment did not in any way diminish the presence and the power of God. Quite the opposite for us. It confirmed the power, the presence, and the provision of God. Our God 
was a God of the big picture. And even though we could not see the forest for the towering trees of tragedy that stood before us, God was still God. And he would never leave us nor forsake us. He had a proven track record in our lives. And even though we could not trace his hand, we had to trust his heart. I believe that was the conclusion reached by the psalmist. Some commentators wrestle with the toxic tone of this particular psalm. So much so, they impose the arrival of an answer between verse 10 and verse 11. Just look at the text. They speculate an answer came to the psalmist between those two verses, even though we do not see it in the text. And the rest of the psalm, according to these Pollyannist theologians, is a response to this perceived revelation from God. There is a sophisticated Hebrew word for such sanctimonious supposition. Hogwash. Hogwash. When we left the psalmist in verse 10, he had resigned himself to divine indifference. Look at the verse. Then I said, it is my grief. If there was an answer, wouldn't he say, it is my delight? It is my joy? It is my celebration? But he said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. The psalmist confesses, I have resigned myself to the reality that God is not going to answer. Talk about a hard question. There is no change in tone. There is no reference to divine intervention. To insinuate such is to cheapen the text and hide the truth because we do not like what we see. Beloved, sometimes life can get messy. And sometimes we cry out to God in sincerity of heart, but we do not get the fairy tale ending. The outlook in this psalm does not change. But praise God, the outlook changes. The psalmist did not know where God was, but he knew who God was. He did not know what God was doing, but he knew what God had done. And so he shifts his focus from the storm to the one who rules and reigns above it. God was God. And the psalmist knew that truth would never change. God is a God of power and majesty and might. And when answers don't come, we must cling doggedly to what God has already done. Look at verse 11. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. When did those deeds occur? In the past. 
I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders. When? Of old. I will meditate on your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people. The sons of Jacob and of Joseph. Even when we cannot see him, God is still God. He is the God who stills the storm and calms the sea. He is the God who is loving, merciful, just, and kind. He is a God who makes a way when there seems to be no way. In the midst of his own personal store, the psalmist returns to a pivotal moment in Hebrew history. That pivotal moment when they stood on the shore of the Red Sea. Water before them, the Egyptian army behind them, execution imminent. And then God did the unthinkable. The waters parted, the Hebrews crossed over, the waters returned, the Egyptian army was destroyed, and a new nation was preserved. You have by your power redeemed your people. Even though the footprints of God had long been washed away, there was no denying what God had done that day. And the work of God in the past gave the psalmist hope in the present. On December 9th, 19... 91, our son was removed from the ECMO machine for the last time. The cardiologist walked into the room and he said his blood gas levels are not what we would like them to be. And I still remember the words, but don't worry, we've got plenty of tricks up our sleeve. We went home that evening. Karen was standing at the, the kitchen sink when the phone rang. It was a couple of guys from the church I pastored inviting me to go play basketball at the community college. I said no. Then Karen said, no, it'll be good for you. It'll be good for you. So a friend picked me up. We drove to the community college. We got into the game. It was a pickup game. We had been up and down the court twice when one of the wives walked into the gym and said, they've called Karen, they want to meet you at the hospital. Leading into the Medical College of Virginia is an incredibly long walkway. I got there, Karen was at the top of the walkway. I, I walked up that ramp, I kissed her, I told her I loved her. We went upstairs to the neonatal unit heart surgeon came in to talk to us. He opened a textbook to a chapter. In fact, it was a chapter he himself had written. Occasionally, rarely, but occasionally, in connection with transposition of the greater arteries, 
there are issues with the cells in the lining of the lungs. Either the cell walls are too thick or the opening too narrow so that the blood cannot oxygenate. Ultimately, the bottom line, our son would not live through the night. We asked him if any of his organs could be used to help any other child. He thanked us but told us no. He walked out of the room. We gathered together with those few friends that were with us. We thank God for his goodness. We thanked him for ten days with our little boy. And then we sang together, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Why do we do that? Was that a ridiculous response to overwhelming grief? It was a simple act of childlike faith. We didn't know where God was, but we knew who God was. We did not know what God was doing, but we knew what God had done. God, out of love for the two of us, had sent his own son to die on a cruel, rugged cross so that we might have a relationship with And we had come to the resolution that if God never did anything else, that was enough. They disconnected our son from all of the tubes. They took us into a room. They brought in a rocking chair. Karen sat in the rocking chair. And she held our son as he slipped out of this life and into the next. In the 22 years since that night, I've not been able to hold my son. But one day I'll hold him in glory. That is my future hope. Because of what Jesus has done. Listen, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know the hellish storm that's crashing onto the shore of your soul or why. But I do know this. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand... When you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart. And the first step in trusting his heart is trusting him with your heart. As Karen and I did so very long ago, recognizing personally and practically that God loved you so much, he sent his one-of-a-kind, utterly unique son to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And by embracing that reality, you can live with the promise of his presence here and the hope of heaven hereafter. Some of you this morning just need to come clean before God. 
I mean, you, you walk in, into rooms like this Sunday after Sunday with a smile on your face, a Bible in your hand big enough to choke a mule. But your world's falling apart. And you just need to come clean this morning. Just honestly, openly, from the very depths of your heart, confess, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand why I'm going through this hellish storm. But I know that you're God. And even though I cannot trace your hand, I choose this morning to trust your heart. And I believe that you will work this mess out for my good. And so God, this morning, I'm just asking you to take the shattered fragments of my broken world put them back together again. When answers don't come, He's still there. Let's pray together. Just quiet your heart before the Lord. I want to give you just a moment to simply be honest with God right where you are. Say, God, this is the storm I'm facing. You know what it is. And God, this morning, even though I cannot trace your hand, I choose, I choose to trust your heart. If you would make that declaration this morning, I'm going to ask you just to stand where you are. Others are praying. Just stand where you are and say, today I'm making this declaration. I can't trace God's hand, but I'm choosing today trust his heart Heavenly Father we're so very grateful that you're the God of a big picture that you've promised never to leave us nor forsake us you never told us that you'd take away the storms only that you'd walk with us through those storms so, Father, may we leave with that hope and that promise. In Jesus' name we pray.